0: There's a lot going on in the world at the moment, Ebola's back. Puerto Rico has been without power and the official estimations of death following the hurricane there have just been challenged There's a volcano erupting in Guatemala and the WHO has just met to decide what to do about all this, as well as sorting out universal healthcare for everyone, access to medicines, eradicating polio, etc, etc. To make sense of what's going on, we've grabbed Ashish Jha, who's director of the Harvard Global Health Institute, to explain what the hell's going on. Ashish, thank you very much for coming in and talking to us. My
1: pleasure. That's a tall order, but I'm I'm happy to be here.
0: (laughs) I'm Duncan Jarvis, multimedia editor at the BMJ. I'm also joined by my colleague Paul. Hi, I'm uh, the international audience editor for the BMJ. Great, Um, Paul. Over to you. You've got your first question.
2: Yeah, Ashish, I I wanted to start by talking about something I saw on your Twitter feed, actually. So I think this is a study that you're, you haven't been involved with, but it's your colleagues at Harvard yeah. that have published it. So this is a study that, that came out in the New England Journal of Medicine, I think it was last week, maybe it was the week before, at the end of May, um, looking at the the mortality estimates in Puerto Rico following Hurricane Maria. And it's it, it's very, very interesting for lots of different reasons, but what, what they've managed to do is a, a very large survey, and their estimate for the uh, mortality is about 70 times higher than the the official um, uh, death count, which was around 64. Um, I, I, I was, there's lots of interesting things that, that are happening here, but firstly, I was curious as to why, other than that it was your colleague's study, I'm sure you're very proud of that, but why did you think this was a really interesting one to highlight?
1: Yeah, so I, I, I was very proud. of The people who did the work um, did really extraordinary work. Um, there are a couple of things worth understanding on this. Um, one is timing. So they did this research and published it within about six months of the event happening. Um, one of the problems, of, I think, of academic medicine, of research, is you know if you come out with an answer three years later, uh, the world has moved on. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason why I think data often fails to have the kind of impact that we all wish it would is because the world has a limited attention span. It's paying attention to certain issues at certain moments. And that's when it is hungry for for new evidence and data. So I think the timing on this study could not be better.
2: And also, I mean, this is not, this wasn't just a a kind of modeling mathematical exercise. They went out and uh, surveyed 3,000 or so Households, Which yeah. is a huge amount of work. So
1: that's what makes it extraordinary, yeah. is that they collected massive amounts of data in very short time period. Uh, and there's no better way to do this than through, sort of through the old kind of shoe leather, mm-hmm. out there knocking on doors, trying to figure out what's going on. Um, it's extraordinarily important work. The, let's talk a little bit about the findings themselves. Mm-hmm. They estimate uh, a range of uh, excess deaths, but the best estimate from the from the data is about four thousand six hundred people died uh, as a result of this storm um that is that is massive, and it is a reminder of several things. um one is that deaths from major uh, storms, major uh, events. Um, well, they're almost never counted correctly. Mm. You know, you'll look at, well, who showed up to the morgue and where you could say, well, the tree limb fell on that person, okay, that's a death from a storm. But that's actually not the way storms uh, and weather events actually kill people what they do is they disrupt the underlying health system. So now you may have a disease that was eminently treatable, but there are no hospitals, there's no doctor, there's nobody available. That is a death from a storm, but we see that as, oh, that's you know, we don't count that. So part of this is refocusing what it means uh, for a population when it suffers an event like Hurricane Maria, and trying to kind of reimagine uh, whom you count, how you count it. Uh, so that, I think, has been another really important part of this. It's not just uh, collecting the data in a timely fashion, but broadening the scope of an, our understanding of what it means to suffer from And I think that
2: their estimate is around one-third of the deaths were, were because of a lack of access to health care or appropriate health care.
1: Yeah, so it's lack of access to health care, but there's the other two-thirds... You can imagine some of it is directly from the storm itself, yeah. but you know, there's so many ways in which people's lives are disrupted after a storm like this. You can imagine there are some people who died because the water was contaminated in mm-hmm. ways that we probably haven't even really measured or even potentially fixed. Mm-hmm. Um, that wouldn't be a lack of access to healthcare, that would just be the impact of, of on the air, on the water, the excess number of uh, asthma deaths. Again, we don't know all the reasons why these uh, people died, but what we know is that the number is much bigger than mm-hmm. any official estimate because the official estimates are very narrow.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, there has been a bit of a response in the last week around this. That's, uh, what, can you t- elaborate on that? What's happening? Yeah,
1: so so there are two things. You know, one of the things that this study has highlighted is what happens. Uh, when the government falls down on its job, I mean, th- there is no reason 4,600 people uh, needed to have died from this storm. Look, some deaths are are almost impossible to prevent, mm-hmm. but most of the deaths that occurred here were not from. Uh, inevitable things. They represented the fact that we did not have an adequate uh, group of people on the ground during the storm. We have not done an adequate job of mannering the water and the, and the air. We have not done a good job of getting the health system up and running again. Those are all choices that we have made as a country, as a government. The federal government has really failed. And that's what has, I think, contributed to most of these deaths. The response on this has been, I think, one of shock. It's a really big number. As you said, 70 times the official estimates. Uh, anger that our government continues to not really acknowledge this. The president uh, has tweeted about pretty much everything else, Mm -hmm. but has not tweeted about the fact that 4,600 of our citizens died. Most of those deaths were entirely preventable.
2: Yeah. I I, uh, interviewed uh, Virginia Murray at Public Health England uh, earlier in the year, and we were talking about sort of disaster preparedness and, and the response. And this really illustrates that really well. But one of the things I... Said in the podcast when, we, when I was doing the interviews, I mentioned natural disasters, which is in the first line of, of this. And her her eyes got very big. She was very, <laughs> and I said, well, "What have I said?" And and it was that that these are disasters. They're not natural. They mm-hmm. um, they're, they're man made. Lots of you know in lots of ways because of where we choose to live and because of our response to them. Yep. It hurricanes, obviously climate change is, a bit, is is happening, but you know hurricanes do happen. Volcanoes do happen. So uh, yeah, that's an interesting. Uh... You no, know,
1: it, it's a really important point, and it's sort of the way we've the word accident. We've mm, kind of yeah. have come to re-understand, reimagine what mm-hmm. it means. You know, when people used to die in car accidents, we said, "Well, that's just an accident; you can't do anything about it." Well, we have learned over time is you can prevent accidents, you mm. can help people survive accidents. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot you can do to reduce, and we've seen this with automobiles that the number of people who die from car accidents has declined dramatically. Mm-hmm. Uh, In the same way, these are natural in the sense that we're not going to prevent hurricanes. Mm -hmm. Uh, We don't have to make them worse, as we're doing with climate change. Uh, But we certainly can do a lot better in how we prepare for them and how we respond to them.
0: Mm. I was going to say, I mean, the thing that seems to be grabbing people's attention is that these are American citizens. It's the richest country in the world, and this is still happening. But that kind of lack of preparedness is fairly universal, it seems. So do you think this is an issue that the global community is actually beginning to tackle much. Do you think Puerto Rico might actually help hone some people's uh, vision a little bit on it?
1: Yeah. So, preparedness is a problem. So, so to answer your question most directly, Duncan, yes, I think I'm optimistic that we're starting to make some progress. But I think it's worth understanding why this is so hard. Um, It's hard because um, preparing for something that might happen at some point and might be really bad is hard for us as humans to do, especially when there are things in front of us that represent real challenges today. So if you say to a health minister, we want you to invest money on a preparedness response to a potential disease outbreak, they'll say, okay, but I have a disease outbreak now. I have malaria in my country and kids are dying. Mm. And so you want me to take money and put it into preparedness for something that might happen. Um, This is actually not a problem of health ministers. We all. Face these kinds of problems, and it's very hard to invest in things that might or might not happen. So that's a that's a predicament. Now, how do you get over that? How do you get beyond that? Um, So, a couple of things. I mean, one is you try to make connections to actual activities today. So, you know, look, you need a good surveillance system, not just for the Ebola outbreak that might happen five or ten or twenty years down the road, but those things will help take care of people today. And connecting public health prevention with actual day-to-day care delivery. I think we have to do a better job of that because I think a lot of these things are dual purpose. Um, so I think that's really important. The second is there are areas in society where we've managed to convince people that it's worth investing. You know, public health people always say, well, the reason nobody wants to invest in public health because nobody sees our success is true. But the, the intelligence agencies say the same thing. Mm. Right, If, if uh, the intelligence agency here, the CIA, others are doing a good job, we will never see the terrorist attacks that never happened. But we have been as a society convinced that that's an investment worth making and we're happy to do it. I think the public health officials, public health leaders have a, an obligation to do a better job explaining to people why these investments are good for them, even if they don't get to see the direct benefits of it. Um, it is not impossible and again i think uh, there are instances um, what i think came out of ebola was a sense the one in west africa in 2013 late 2013 through early 2015 that outbreak uh, that killed 11,000 individuals most of whom should not have died it was it was most of those deaths were wholly preventable um was a realization that if we don't start making investments in in prevention in preparation uh, things can get out of hand very very quickly and then it's just much more expensive and both in terms of human lives and, and dollars and that connection I think has motivated people but you know if you're going to be a little bit of a cynic you can say yeah it did and we've had investments we have this thing called sePI which is trying to create vaccines we've had some investments in in health public health systems. But boy, it's still wholly inadequate because that Ebola outbreak now feels like a distant uh, memory.
2: I think the other thing is that, it, that it's a bit—it's a grind, right? Like to kind of be prepared and to be alert. I guess I mean this sort of brings us to to your recent paper, that, the analysis article that you were an author on that was calling for an independent monitoring of disease outbreak preparedness. Um, it, well, you've you've already just touched on some of those things, um, but. Almost as soon as you published that paper at the World Health Assembly there was a, an announcement by the WHO and the World Bank that they were kind of partnering to to actually put some of this in place yeah that's not in your paper because it didn't it hadn't happened then yep. you were at the the world health assembly what's what has kind of uh, kind of shaken out of, of that around yep. preparedness what, what's going to be different
1: so um, we'll see I mean in, at the end of the day the proof will be in are we going to actually be much more prepared and, and so if you ask that question today. We're three years out from the end of the Ebola outbreak in West Africa. Is the world meaningfully more prepared today for a terrible disease outbreak? I'd say no, not Mm -hmm. meaningfully, maybe marginally. We've done some things, but boy, we've not moved. Um, The idea of an independent, credible monitoring board is that we used to have monitoring before the Ebola outbreak. We used to ask countries, are you prepared? And most countries said, yes, we are, (laughs) right? Um, yeah. If you ask me today, am I prepared for, all? <laughs> I'm sure, yeah, yeah. of course I am. Yeah. But the truth is, even if I believe it, it's really hard to do self-assessments. Yeah. And so you do need some external force that works closely with governments and makes sure that we're making real progress. And you need somebody to kind of give a, a report card to the world of how ready are we mm-hmm. for the next big one, because it's coming. I mean, this is not an if there is, no, there's no if, it's when, mm-hmm. And um and so you need that. And WHO, I think, suffered only after the people of West Africa, I mean, they were the biggest sort of casualty obviously and suffered the most, but after that, I would say WHO suffered immensely from that Ebola outbreak in terms of its hit to reputation. And so it is putting a lot of time and energy into trying to be better prepared and be more responsive. And what they're doing right now, there's a little Ebola outbreak in the in the DRC, mm-hmm. and WHO has been very focused, put a lot of time and energy into it uh, because they don't want to make the same mistake again.
0: Mm-hmm. Can I just derail the conversation slightly here? Yeah. Um, I've heard about the WHA for a long time, but I'm not sure what it actually is and how it works and yeah. how things like disaster preparedness get discussed yeah. in that forum. So as someone who's seen that, yeah. can you can you explain? Sure. Um, so WHA, it,
1: the World Health Assembly, is in some ways it's just a meeting of health ministers from around the world. And they get together once a year to talk about the priorities of the World Health Organization and their own national priorities. But it's much more than that, because when you get 190 or so health ministers in a place, um, a lot of interesting things happen. Like all the NGOs who work on healthcare and health show up and lots of others, World Bank, Global Fund, everybody else comes by. And it becomes a much broader conversation than what is on WHO's agenda Mm -hmm. for the next 12 months. Mm -hmm. So technically, it's a meeting where a lot of business is done. Uh, You know, they pass resolutions and they say, yes, this is what we're going to do. Those are important. But in some ways they're almost the sideshow. The sideshow has become the main show. Right. And the sideshow is the gestalt of like there are all these side meetings, health ministers, others kind of engaging with each other. And um, and that becomes a major part of the focus. So a lot of the stuff on Global health security, disaster preparedness, disease outbreak preparedness. A lot of that, some of that happened in the main assembly, but a lot of it was happening outside the assembly.
2: Did you get a sense of what was the what was the kind of chat that wasn't the official chat? But what were people talking about there? Yeah, what was what was on people's minds?
1: So I think you know um, this WHA was. Very, very different than the, certainly the last one, and I'd say many yeah. of the previous ones. Um, the biggest difference is uh, Dr. Tedros, the mm-hmm. new Director General. Um, he's very dynamic. Uh, he's very engaged, um, and and I and I he is a politician, and I mean that in the best sense of the word, right? He. He is politically very adept. I actually believe you need a good political leader at the head of that. You're not looking for a technocrat to run mm-hmm. WHO. They have plenty of technocrats and they're very important. But you might need somebody with a lot of political sophistication. And he has it. Um, so there was a kind of a buzz of WHO is back after a few demoralizing years. Um, I, I thought that was great. I also get makes me a little anxious and a little nervous <laughs> because in order for it to be back it actually has to be an effective organization and I want to see that Uh, in a much more sustained way than, you know, than what happened at WHO. So I don't mean to be negative and I don't mean to kind of rain down on the parade, but at the same time, uh, we shouldn't oversell this because the history of WHO is either jubilation that this is the most important and only agency that matters or, oh my God, it's a disaster and we should get rid of it. And something in between would actually be really helpful.
0: And Tedros has come in at a point where the world seems to be changing politically um donald trump's come in and he's probably at the the vanguard of this but you know the same thing that's happening in the uk with brexit Mm. now in italy uh germany even which was very outlooking is turning inwards um and at the same time i suppose countries like china and things are, are maneuvering to to take up a lot of that space that's being left so in that sort of realm, in that sort of political maneuvering way, do you, did you feel like there was a difference at this um, at this meeting as opposed to previous?
1: Yeah. Um, so I did, and in in some ways that worried me. And, and let me see if I can articulate that. <laughs> um, so on one hand, there is no doubt that there is um, a big kind of backlash to global uh, globalism or globalization. Right? We have seen that over the last five years. Across Western Europe, um, we've seen it in the U.S. and um, and I think we have to understand the roots of that backlash, and we have to address the roots of that backlash. Some of the backlash is just pure racism, and I my take is I don't I don't need to understand the roots of that so much as as much as we need to stomp it out. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not I mean look a majority of people voted for Brexit. A majority of people here are not racist. Mm. That To call it that, or I mean, uh, only a minority of people voted for Donald Trump, but not all of Donald Trump's voters are racist, but not by any long shot. And so we have to understand what motivated those large proportions of populations who voted the way they did. Vote for ways that I wouldn't have, right? Or I didn't in the in the case of the US. Um, and we have to understand that globalization has created an anxiety and a tension that, that is real and we have to address it. What worries me about WHA and what's happening in the global health community is a hunkering down where they see this the the Donald Trumps of the world as an attack on their worldview. Mm. It is. But the response is, instead of trying to reach out, understand the underlying concern and address them, it's sort of batten down the hatches and try to weather this storm. I think it's going to be a long storm. I don't think we're on the verge of this nationalism fever breaking, and then pretty soon we'll be back to globalization uh, heyday. Uh, I think it's a, you know, I, I, I what I say, to, just to use the analogy, I say to people, this is not a rainy day, this is climate change. Um, we are in a different climate and will be for a long time. We have to understand uh, what's causing that inward-looking kind of feeling among a lot of people, and we have to address it. And that's not how the global health community is thinking about it, I think, mm-hmm. unfortunately.
2: Are you seeing, is there a kind of diplomatic like a health diplomacy sort of change as well though I mean because there is there is a there is obviously an underlying reason why people feel dissatisfied but the the kind of manifestation of that is that the people that are now making decisions policymakers um, are appointed and, ha- and and have a, a different worldview that might not really chime with a, with a with a kind of um, multilateral kind of global Uh, approach to to solving our our issues. I mean, is that something that you've seen?
1: Yeah, I think there is, if I understand the question, I Mm. think, um, let let me see if this helps answer your question. Um, I think 20 years ago, even 10 years ago, you could sell a major program like PEPFAR, you know, President's Mm -hmm. Emergency Program for AIDS Relief. President George W. Bush put that in, put billions of dollars in. By every measure, it has been immensely successful in saving millions of lives. It's an awesome program. One of the questions I wonder about is could we, if we didn't have PEPFAR, could we start it today? I think the answer almost surely is no. Mm. Just there isn't the appetite for it. That's deeply disappointing on some level. Saying to people who would oppose a PEPFAR today you're racist, you're, you don't care about the world, it's not useful, like, that's not a helpful framework. Just saying it's a good thing to do, or this is these are sort of multi, that isn't working. And so I think your question was, as I understood it, was how do we tie it into what people do care about? And the sense of the, the increasing kind of focus on global health diplomacy is the evidence, for instance, that we're in the countries that we have invested in PEPFAR, um, people's attitudes about America are much more positive. And we think some of that is due to a sense that people have that America has been helpful and has like done things that are useful for, and that's a benefit that Americans get to reap. Mm. And being able to explain to people that in a globalized world, where we don't just get to put up walls and feel like we can live in an isolated world, making the world safer and healthier benefits us too. And making that connection, I think is really important. And some people find that distasteful and say, well, we should just do it because it's the right thing to do. Fine. My take is I don't really care what, why you do it, as long as we do it. Mm-hmm. And if it means for some people explaining it that it's actually benefiting them and their country, I think we Absolutely. ought to
0: do that. I think our development minister, um, our previous development minister, <laughs> uh, uh, was pretty explicit about that being her idea that, that DFID funding is a diplomatic tool more than, than anything else.
1: Yeah. No, I, I think that's really important because, again, and I, I don't need to question whether this is the right thing or not, but there are people living in the U.K. who say, look, we have enough problems here, and I appreciate that there's poverty in India or China, or China less and less, but, uh, but can't we spend those pounds here? Same argument in the U.S. I'm very sympathetic to that argument. I actually think we can do both, right? You can both help build up the problems and address the problems in the U.K. and the U.S. and be very generous globally. Um, but uh, but you've got to remind people that there is a benefit that the people of England and the U.K. and the people of the U.S. when on the other side uh, get from these investments. Mm.
0: But the thing about those kind of investments is they tend to be quite targeted or, you know, they're for a project or, or something. They don't go into the a normative agency like the WHO who can then sort of parcel it out. And that must change global health priorities away from, you know, what's actually best for the world and and more, you know, does that worry you?
1: Yeah, it's it's something I go back and forth on. I wish I had a clear answer. I'll give you the clear answer, which I think is a bit (laughs) wrong. Um, The clear answer is we've got to be investing in systems and WHO should be the major, decider of these things and these bilateral disease specific vertical programs make no sense that is completely intellectually consistent and i think it's naive and let me explain Um, you know if if you went to the american people and said we want to invest billions of dollars to build up health systems around the world you're not gonna get any takers But if you say we want to invest billions of dollars to help people who are dying from HIV AIDS, not die from HIV AIDS, because now we have treatments and we want to make sure they have access. Majority of Americans support that. Um, So that's the reality. And my take is I'm much more interested in getting stuff done than being kind of morally righteous and right. Um, And these disease, vertical disease programs get the right political support. And when you live in a democracy, you got to have political support for things if you want them to be sustainable.
2: That's kind of interesting, because one of the reasons why you're at the the World Health Assembly was to talk about systems yes. and, and universal health coverage. You had a, a I was going to say sh- sideshow, side event. Uh, it wasn't, yeah, right, the side <laughs> event. Hopefully it wasn't a side show. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it was a central, but it's, how did that go? What was it that you were trying to achieve there? Yeah. What was the event?
1: Yeah, so the, so the event um, was, uh, was about about the notion of effective universal health coverage and focusing on quality. So let me explain a bit more background on that. Um, The big topic at WHA, and I would say in global health right now, is UHC, universal health coverage. This is Dr. Tedros' number one priority. He talks about it every day, the idea that everybody in the world should be covered. Fantastic. I don't know very many people who don't agree with that from a from a concept point of view. It's completely right. Um, the question, of course, is why are we doing that? And there are two reasons we're doing it. One is to offer financial protections. If you get really sick, you shouldn't have to go bankrupt. We agree with that. Um, but the second is because we think healthcare is good, and it, if you get access to it when you're sick, you're going to get better. And yet, there's just lots and lots of evidence that when you give people coverage, they don't seem to their health outcomes don't get better. And so this is something a bunch of us have puzzled over for years. And the answer, I think a large part of it, is simply an issue of quality. If you give access to really poor quality care, don't be surprised if it doesn't make a big difference. And yet the evidence that we have found, and this was in this um, uh, analysis piece we wrote for BMJ, is that the quality of healthcare people receive around the globe is abysmal? It's really low, it's really poor. And so the purpose of this event was to say yes, UHC is great, but if we're gonna do UHC to improve people's health and well being, gotta make quality at the top of that agenda. And that's what we talked about. We had a couple of health ministers talk about what they were doing, World Bank, others. Uh, Kamran talked about why BMJ. Kamran Abbasi, executive editor mm-hmm. of BMJ, talked about why um, BMJ is really interested in in being at the forefront of that discussion.
2: Uh, th- so your analysis, article, I mean, that reminded me in some ways of of Gapminder, that that organization that that sort of likes to. T- Outline where we are in the world and really show that there is a there is a gap in people's understanding of the world. And, and I think at right at the end you right, you know, we've got to understand the world as it is rather than as we'd like it to be. And there was some really sort of eye-opening, sort of, uh, and I, I would go as far as to say mind-blowing things that I read in that. I was like yeah. really surprised. And you know, one was about the amount of time that GPs spend with patients is is less. Than might be expected, rather than being overworked. Yeah, and then no another
0: GP readers, <laughs> listeners to this in the UK anyway, their their heads are exploding at this point.
2: So, and and then I guess the other is around you know kind of qualifications and uh, and, and and qualifications don't equal quality. I think that's yeah. Uh, you better expand on the thing about gps <laughs> yeah i I'm will not seeing enough people otherwise uh, i don't want to feel those complaints
1: yeah no here's look most of the data that we talked about in this analysis piece come from low and middle income countries and so we're talking about places like india and china and vietnam and uh and tanzania and, and uh and other places but the, the, but we're not talking about the us and the uk and germany um well, here's what we find if you ask most policy people, what's the biggest problem vis-a-vis healthcare care uh, in low and middle income countries, they're going to say access. People don't have access to healthcare care services. Um, I believe that's actually not the biggest problem. I think the quality is a bigger problem than access. And let me at least make the case for why. Um, when you look empirically, take a village. Uh, I, my family's originally from Bihar, the, you know, one of the poorest states of India. Take a poor state like Bihar. You go to a typical village. You'll find five providers for 2,000 people.
0: Right.
1: And you're like, wow, there's lots of access. Now, it turns out most of those providers have no formal training. They never went to medical school. So then you're like, oh, OK, OK, so they're not really providers. They're quacks. They're people who just have set up shop. And I agree with that. And then the question I ask is, why do you care about qualifications? Why do you care that they don't? they didn't go to medical school? And when I ask that, people give me this puzzled look, like, what do you mean, why do I care? is not the most obvious question in the world. Like, if you didn't go to medical school or nursing school, you don't actually know medicine. And if you did, you know medicine, and it ought to make a big difference. And empirically, it turns out it doesn't, that people who are informally trained offer quality of care that's almost as good and in many instances better than people who went to
0: medical school. So when you say informally trained there, do you mean that people generally have some sort of, I don't know, like apprenticeship learning? Yeah, so the classic example
1: is the person who worked essentially as an assistant, often a clerk, somebody else, in a doctor's office for 10 years, and every day watched the doctor take care of patients, and after 10 years said, you know, I can do that. (laughs) Um, And then when that doctor retired, took over, or just went and set up his or her own shop, and is now practicing medicine and they call themselves a doctor. And the crazy part is if they apprenticed with a really good physician after 10 years, they actually do many things reasonably well just through pattern recognition and experience. But the bigger question that it raises is, but how could they be as good as people who actually went to medical school? It's one thing to be almost, but like that makes no sense. And the reason, and and just to be clear to your listeners, we're talking about places like India. We're not talking about the UK. So I don't believe somebody who sat around a doctor's (laughs) office for 10 years can rival what a GP can do. Uh, I have plenty of evidence that that's not, (laughs) not the case. But in India, there are two problems. One is this apprenticeship that leads lots of people to actually be able to do a decent job. But the bigger problem is that medical schools, many of them are absolutely world-class. We know that because many of those physicians end up here in the U.K. and the U.S. And many of them are absolutely awful. Like, there's no regulatory oversight. Technically, there is. But there are plenty of these what are called donation schools where you basically write a check or your family writes a check. You go. You never show up to classes. Nothing happens. And three years later, you get a diploma. And now you're a physician. Mm. And you can imagine that person when he or she sets up shop They neither learned anything nor have had the advantage of being an apprentice. And it's no surprise that their quality actually is quite abysmal. Mm. So in much of the world, the link between qualification, whether you went to school or not, and the actual quality of care you deliver is surprisingly weak and at times non-existent. So when I go back to that village in Bihar, which has five providers, and you said, well, but they're not formally trained, My pushback is that may not be the most important question. The most important question is how good are they? Mm. And that's why I believe quality is a bigger problem than access, because people have access to healthcare, It's often just not very good. And then, of course, there's the expense part of it is that if they get really sick and need more expensive things, they just can't afford it. So financial protection is also really important. But quality is the dominant
2: issue. What's your take on on how to to resolve that i mean so some of it is is it because of the siloed nature of 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 how medicines sort of grown up over time so that that doesn't really make sense in a modern world <laughs> uh, is it you know is it that perhaps some healthcare systems are trying to kind of mimic others that are already sort of uh, more established i mean you you do hint at well don't more than hint suggest ta- task shifting as, yeah. as as an important uh, yeah way to resolve this?
1: Yeah, so the way I look at it is we've had a strategy in global health where I think, and I actually uh, think, you know, NHS is the model. Like, global health people have been saying, have been basically for the last 50 years trying to get the rest of the world to look like NHS. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I remind people that NHS is great but it is uniquely a British system and even within that there's like Mm. the Scottish NHS looks a little different than the English NHS and there is no one NHS and even NHS is struggling with its own what is its future.
2: One of our analysis editors is uh is based in India, and he, yeah. and he he just sort of sighed over the phone the other day and said that he felt like the NHS had become a religion in the UK, which yeah. I think is true. Yeah,
1: <laughs> and but my point is that that you know, so this mental model of you have GPS and you have this whole structure and it's it's run in a certain way, um, I think works really well for the UK. Um, it's not clear that you want to try to go replicate that everywhere else because every country has come up with its own solution. That's a kind of one point. And, and we even see that in Western Europe, right? Like the Swiss system looks very different than NHS and Germany looks different than the UK. Like even among, you know, relatively high income countries right next to each other, people come up with their own solution. My general approach has been I don't care what the solution looks like. As long as you're covering people, you're providing high quality care and you're providing financial protection, uh, I, and you're not bankrupting the system, I'm, I'm pretty good with whatever solution meets those needs. In places like India, um, what this has meant is that we have, so we have large parts of, the, of India that are not covered by doctors, people who actually went to medical school, or even if they are, patients don't go to them because patients know that those people are really bad quality. And so you have this massive informal infrastructure. We don't count them formally, we don't know how many there are, but there are data to suggest that 60-70% of primary care providers in India are informal. So the strategy that the Indian government has taken for the last 50 years is, well, those people are quacks, those people are are frauds, and we ought to round them all up and put them all in jail. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Well, that's a problem for the 70% of India that gets health care from those people. And the strategy that I would personally take is acknowledge that they exist, because they do. See the world as it is, not the way we wish it to be. Um, These people are in the communities that they need to be in. And they are trusted, to varying degrees, by those people. Figure out how to help informal providers get better. Don't try to recreate NHS from 1950, because it's not going to work. And, yes, and and here's the other advantage. So I think that's one part of the strategy. Um, The second part of the strategy is we now have increasingly better technology um, to the extent that training had been about knowledge. And on a smartphone, you can actually generate a lot of knowledge and you can help these people these providers get much much better much more quickly using technology so i, I think it's an opportunity to re-envision what is global health and what is healthcare delivery uh, and not try to recreate a model uh from a different generation um you know i'm not if tomorrow nhs were to go away and the uk created a new one i'm not sure it would create the exact same one mm-hmm. right because the world has, has changed
0: the current government anyway certainly <laughs> um i'm just gonna say on that i mean when you explain it like that, it seems perfectly reasonable, but if you'd come to me a priori and said, you know, I think we should just, it would have sounded um, extraordinary. Um, Have you seen, have you got any other examples of of your time looking at um, medicine generally or global health specifically? Um, Any of the other counterintuitive uh, things like that that you've learned?
1: Yeah, so well one place, and a lot of my work has focused on the US, and as everybody knows, uh, America spends an extraordinary amount of money on healthcare, Um, almost half of all dollars in the world uh, in healthcare are spent in the U.S., about 40, 45% of the global spending on healthcare is in the U.S., which is crazy, mm. given that it's a country of 320 million people. And there has been this, uh, and so we've known that, we've known that it's about twice as much as most OECD countries. And so the standard line that most policymakers in the U.S. and uh, elsewhere have had is, you know, America just has sort of a this incredible appetite for healthcare, and we overuse healthcare in ways that nobody else does. And uh, that's really the source of all that spending. Um, It turns out, not to be the case, and this is from a paper we published about three months ago. Um, of course, we do use twice as much, uh, we do spend twice as much. Sorry, we do spend twice as much on healthcare. We don't actually use more healthcare services. Uh, we see the doctor less often than than the Europeans do. We actually spend less, fewer days in the hospital than Europeans do. Uh, yes, we do more MRIs. Um, we have fewer hip replacements. We have more knee replacements. We're above average on some, below average on others, and what I say is, on average, we're average. Uh, And so, well, that doesn't make sense because how can you spend twice as much money on healthcare if you're not utilizing more? And that's because everything we do is twice as expensive. Um, Our doctors are paid more. Our nurses are paid more. Our MRIs cost three times what MRIs in Switzerland cost. I mean, Switzerland's not a cheap country. And yet an MRI in Switzerland is a third of the price of an MRI in the United States. Um we talk a lot about pharmaceutical prices being higher in the US, and they are, but all the prices are higher in the US. And again, why that is is complicated, but it is counterintuitive and certainly goes against the story that policymakers have been kind of telling for years about how Americans are overutilizing healthcare. We may be overutilizing healthcare, but that is not a uniquely American problem. Um there's a lot of overutilization globally. Uh, America is not special when it comes to that. We're just special in the prices that we pay.
0: Mm. And I think to almost round this up uh, to, uh, and try and bring a few things together, um, you mentioned there the cost of medicines and the fact that they are more expensive in the U.S. Um, and at the WHA, I believe access to medicines was a, a big thing, and that's an issue that's, that's really important for universal health coverage. Yeah. Um, and last time we'll mention him, um, but Donald Trump's recently uh, come out and said, you know, the way to to fix pricing in in the US is by charging the rest of the world more. Um, I'm just wondering, does is that having an effect on on some of the conversations that we're happening at the WHA? That that kind of that that change in tone as well.
1: Yeah, so uh, Donald Trump uh, doesn't have the best economics advisors. Um, Because raising prices, let's say somehow Donald Trump could uh, bully the UK and other Western European countries into paying more, that would have no impact on healthcare, I mean, on, on drug prices in America, because it's just sort of not how the market works. It might lead to more innovation if there's more money in the mar- in the pool, uh, but it wouldn't have any pr- effect on prices. And I think he knows that, or I, I hope I have no idea what he knows, actually. <laughs> I think his advisors know that, but it felt like kind of a good thing to say we'll make other countries pay more. But it does raise a much broader question, which is what, what do we do about medicines? that are life-saving, um, that are expensive, in terms of making sure people around the world have access. And here's the tension, because the simple answer, which is wrong, is you just make sure you just give all those medicines away to everybody in the poor countries. The, the reason why that's wrong, so that seems right, so why? how could it possibly be wrong? Um, the reason, is medicines don't come out of nowhere, right? And what you don't wanna do is create a marketplace where you signal to pharmaceutical companies that if you make a medicine for, that is gonna be useful for poor people in the world, we will just take that medicine and give it away to everybody. Because that's the best way to make sure there are no investments in medicines for the poor. And all of the investments go into hypertension and treating baldness and things that Americans and the Brits and and others are willing to pay for. Um, So we don't want that. And that is what will happen if we're simplistic about this. So what we want is incentives for creating drugs that help poor people in poor places and a mechanism to pay for it so that you don't expect poor people to have to pay the kind of prices that we Americans or even folks in the UK pay. Um, it's a thorny problem, but I'd be, I'm would be i much more interested in trying to find a solution on that than to sort of demagogue this by either beating up on pharmaceutical companies or saying that the problem is the Europeans. No, but it's just a fundamentally hard problem. Most important things are just hard to solve, mm-hmm. like preparedness that we talked about earlier. There's no silver bullet, but we owe it to the world to try to work hard to solve these things.
2: I just have one other question, which is around universal health coverage, because it's always a bit of an elephant in the room that America doesn't really have universal health coverage. And that's such a kind of fraught conversation, I think, even to have. What's your take on that? I mean, is there a way that, that... I mean, is it just that politically that will never happen or I mean eventually no. I'm sure it could but uh.
0: yeah
1: so let's a couple of things I mean so right now America's at 90% and when Donald Trump came in it was at 91% coverage um, because of some policy changes it's dropped a little but not much so we're not at universal health coverage but we're not horribly far away yeah. If you ask who that, that 10% is that's uh, still uncovered, uh, and I don't mean to minimize. I mean, 10% of people not being covered, I think, is, is a massive problem. And they're
2: off, I, uh, I mean, I, I'm, I don't know this for sure, but it's often the, 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 there's a, a small group of people who cost a lot to the health system. Yep. And they're the ones that probably, in some insurance sort of settings... Aren't desirable to... Uh, right,
1: but those people, actually, the really expensive ones, yeah. mostly are covered. Okay, okay. Um, what's interesting is that 10% who are not, so who are they? Uh, about 2-3% are, um, are undocumented workers, people right. in the country illegally. Um, and they're, look, there are Americans, been, many of them have lived for 25 years in America, we have to find a way to cover them, but politically the hardest group mm-hmm. to cover. Mm-hmm. Um, some chunk of them still are relatively young, healthy people who are just opting out of getting coverage. Uh, and paying a penalty, uh, th- I would like to rather have them in, but the politics of that is you got to charge a bigger penalty. Bigger penalties are, is is never a great. I mean, just politically yes. difficult. And then probably three four percent of the population are people who are really chronically ill, who just have, have not gotten coverage through one mechanism mm-hmm. or another, or are really or are poor, and we've got to find a way to cover yeah. those people. I think, look, if the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare had been implemented fully in the way that it was intended to, we would have gotten to ninety six ninety seven mm-hmm. percent. Um, I still think we can. And I think Republicans, again, and maybe not this president, but uh, but under a different Republican leadership, I can imagine a a more uniquely American set of ideas that could get us into the upper 90s. And once you're into the upper 90s, you're essentially there. Yeah. so America is not that far away. But but there is one other point, which is this is very deeply cultural. Mm-hmm. There are a, lo- a lot of Americans who believe that the job of government is to do what people cannot do for themselves. And they believe that people should be able to figure out how to get health coverage. Mm-hmm. Hey, 90% of Americans do. Mm-hmm. So it is not the job of government to make sure every single person does it. That sense of solidarity that exists, I think, in the UK, where people don't look at things that way, It's not the same country, and we're going to have to come up
0: with a slightly different way of getting there. I mean, which brings an interesting point. Do you think universal health coverage is going to be possible or is a a practical thing to to have around the world, given the cultural differences, um, maybe best highlighted by that difference between the Brits and the Americans?
1: Yeah, so I think broadening coverage is a really good thing, Uh, making sure that when people get sick, they don't go bankrupt, and they get care is a good thing. Uh, I guess the question is, um, beyond the sloganeering, can we uh, can we talk seriously about what this means? And that's where it gets complicated because the moment you bring up the thorny issues around UHC, people get very uncomfortable. So let's talk about those for a few seconds because you know we should be able to talk about them. One is when we say universal health coverage. Okay, universal means everybody's covered. What's covered? Is everything covered? Mm. Is the latest um, uh, genomic therapy covered? Mm. Are we saying that people in India should every one of them should get the latest gene therapy if that's if that is, becomes approved by the FDA? Um, should everybody in Europe get all of that stuff? And once you get into talking about that stuff, is where it starts getting uncomfortable. What most UHC plans have tended to do is provide a very thin layer of relatively shallow coverage for everybody. Mm-hmm. But if you think about it. that's fine, but that's not actually what you want. You want the sick people coverage. You want the, I got hit by a car coverage, Mm -hmm. not the, I have a cold and I need to see a doctor coverage. And yet, the sick people deep coverage where, if you spend two weeks in the intensive care unit, that's covered. If you have cancer, that's covered. If you have a heart attack, that's covered. That's really expensive. And then it makes makes us uh, deal with one other question, which is if you have a limited budget, which most governments do, um, and you're a poor country and you have a limited budget. Do you use it to provide deep health care coverage, which primarily means covering hospital care? Or do you invest it in sanitation? Do you invest it in public health infrastructure? And nobody wants to have that conversation because that starts getting really uncomfortable. (laughs) And then we all go back to talking about UHC. And so I'm good with UHC, but I just think we need to go into it with eyes wide open about what are we not doing because of UHC and what do we mean by UHC. And as long as we're talking about those things openly and honestly, I'm happy to go down this road. But much of the conversation on UHC tends to be much more shallow and much more about everyone deserves coverage. Mm -hmm. I agree. But how do we do that?
0: That's a good point to end it on. Ashish, thank you so much for coming in and talking to us. My pleasure, this was great. (laughs) Thanks Ashish. (laughs) You've been listening to Ashish Jha, Director of the Harvard Global Health Institute, talking about, well, everything really. We've mentioned a few papers in the course of this and we'll link to those from the podcast text. We're planning more of these interviews about global health and how it actually works, so do let us know what you'd like to hear Also, obviously, subscribe on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts from. You know the drill by now. That's all for this episode, but we've also just posted another podcast about nutrition this time. What's going on in the world of nutritional research? And why is it so hard to get some simple dietary advice? I'm Duncan Jarvis. Thanks for listening.